I'm just going to pray and then we're going to get into, get into the Word. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for your presence with us, Holy Spirit. And Lord, I want to pray this prayer from Ephesians 3. Let's put it on the screen, but you can close your eyes if you want to. It says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Father, we pray for you to soften our hearts, speak right into the places we need you to speak to this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As I said, we're coming today to the end of this series, Surprised by God. I hope you have enjoyed it. I know I've spoken to a number of people who've really loved it. I've loved it, hearing uh, the different attributes of God, letting him speak for himself. And uh, it's been a great, a great season, I think, coming towards it now, coming into Christmas time. Uh, I'm sure many of you have got your Christmas trees up now. You've seen our Christmas tree in the foyer downstairs. I'm sure you've got your Christmas music playing at home. And some of you may have started watching Christmas movies. Now, Christmas movies is obviously a very important subject that we must cover. What are the five best Christmas movies? And I'm sure we'll have different ones in the room, but in the top five, there'll be similar ones. I'm just going to educate you. You must have The Muppet Christmas Carol in your top five. It has to be in there. Uh, Elf, Elf must be in there. Uh, Home Alone, one and two, you could have in there as one. I'll I'll give you that. Uh, Some of you might like It's a Wonderful Life, or Love Actually, or The Holiday. Uh, And then, of course, there is Die Hard, which is the important one, which we all know is the Christmas movie. But some of you, you may have watched the Narnia movies. You might watch The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe around Christmas time. And we know the sort of famous uh, thing in that story to do with Christmas is that it's it's been winter for 100 years, but it's never Christmas. It's always winter, but never Christmas. And then halfway through the book or or the movie, Father Christmas turns up and he gives gifts out. And it's this whole thing through the story that Aslan is on the move, that, 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 that the Savior is coming, and that hope is returning, that spring is coming, and that, that is what it is when Father Christmas comes. Oh, hope. Hope is coming. Maybe Christmas is coming this time. And I want to tell you a little story about the author of the Narnia uh, stories, C.S. Lewis, who I'm sure you've heard of. Uh, he was a bit of a genius. He, he, was, uh, he got a triple third at Oxford University, um, and then he went on to teach at Oxford University and Cambridge University, studied English, was author of uh, many books. He was the professor of medieval literature, uh, classic philosophy, and studied ancient mythology. Uh, he wasn't a Christian, uh, but he became friends with some Christians, and one in particular was J.R.R. R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. So you've got uh, the creator of Narnia, friends with the creator of Middle-earth. Interesting friendship. And they would speak about the Bible, about Christianity, about Christ. And Lewis could understand how there might be people who would believe in a God and how maybe even this God might want people to live in a certain way. But what he couldn't get his head around was that the Christian religion wasn't that. Christians insisted on telling a story 
where this uh, God entered into his creation and even died for his creation, as we've been singing about this morning and celebrating that God would come into his creation. C.S. Lewis couldn't understand that. And Tolkien appealed to him on the basis of the myth that he loved so much. Don't you love the stories where the God would die and rise again? The rags to riches stories. The stories of monsters overcome by heroes. Epic quests. Grand romances. Victory snatched from the jaws of defeat. Aren't these the things that you love? The prince marrying the pauper and living happily ever after. And Lewis was happy to agree, yeah, I love those, but they're not true. They are myths. They are fairy tales. They don't uh, have a grounding in reality. And uh, Tolkien, Tolkien wanted him to consider they are not lies. There exists a real fairy tale, a true myth that lies behind all of these stories. So Lewis considered this. As I say, he was a very intelligent man. He considered this. He went through the Bible, looked through the story, and within a month, he was fully convinced and had given his life to Jesus. And then he went on to write many books about the Christian faith, defending it. In the four Gospels, the books in the Bible that are the biographies of Jesus, Lewis said that the old myth of the dying God comes down from the heaven of legend, to the earth of history. It actually happened. God came through and actually walked, as we've sung this morning, and bled and breathed our air at a particular place, at a particular time. All the other myths, they they exist in non-existence. They take place in non-existence, like Star Wars, in a galaxy far, far away. The characters are imaginary. They live and die beyond reality. But the New Testament accounts take place in human history, in our world, under the reign, under the reign of named rulers such as Pontius Pilate, in named places such as Galilee, which is roughly 3,000 miles away from where we're sitting right now. Our dates are aligned to Jesus' life. Hospitals and schools and universities have been built on the back of his teaching. He's been portrayed in movies and on TV by hundreds of people. He's been the central figure in much of the most famous works of art through history worldwide. Millions of articles, blogs and books have been written about him. Our ethics and morals have been shaped by his teaching and by his people. He has changed the landscape of humanity. And so Lewis went on to write, as a literary historian, I'm perfectly convinced that whatever the Gospels are, they are not legends. I have read a great deal of legends, and I'm quite clear that they are not the same sort of thing. He had become convinced, not just of the existence of a God, but of a God who had revealed himself. And had even stepped into his own creation. The artist stepping into his painting. The the, the author stepping into his own story. And as we've gone through this series, we've looked at some of the many ways in which he showed himself to us in the Bible. Today we're looking, as we've heard, about the God who stooped. 
the God who speaks. The message is crucial for every single one of us here, whether you are a convinced believer or whether you are somebody who has been dragged along here, not sure why you're here. Because if you're here as someone who does not yet believe in God, you need to be clear about the God that you don't believe in. What God is it that you don't believe in? As we've looked into God's revelations of himself this term, we hope that there have been many great surprises for people who realize that the God that they've been rejecting is not actually the God of this book. They have been rejecting a facade or a caricature. There are many caricatures that we can hold on to, but when we open our ears and let God speak for himself, he surprises us. I've been a believer for 33 years or so. And I still get surprised often when I let God speak for himself and remind me of things I've forgotten and open my eyes to things that I had not understood. Even the most committed Christians in the room need to hear this message because Christians forget the love of God far too easily. And when we do, it has implications. We revert back into fear. We revert back into religion. We revert into trying to get satisfaction and hope from the wrong things. And some of you here may be very reluctant to believe that there is a God, because as Morris said last week, you can just think, isn't it, just feels childish, believing in things we can't see. Isn't it? And as a friend of mine said at school, well, if there is a, a God, why doesn't he come to the World Cup final and reveal himself? Why doesn't he, why doesn't he go to the Olympics and, and show himself to everyone? Why doesn't he write the Ten Commandments in the sky and stars? Why doesn't God reveal himself like that? And we may be sympathetic to that sentiment. Why doesn't God put it beyond doubt? Why doesn't he impose himself so that we have to believe? Why doesn't he use the stars to write his commands in the sky? But the thing is, just because you acknowledge that there must be a God, or convinced that there is a God, it doesn't mean that you would like him. I don't think I would like a God who forced his acknowledgement, my acknowledgement of him. Such a God who turns up with a display of dominance. He might force us to acknowledge him, maybe even force us to obey him, but he wouldn't win our hearts. The God of the Bible is fully intent, not on begrudging, begrudging praise and worship and fear, but in delight, in Love and in relationship with us. He's the God of the ultimate love story. His desire is not just to show us who's boss. No, he wants to be in relationship with us. That is why he came. Think about what we're celebrating in a few weeks. Not a God who came dominant, showing his muscles, pushing us down, but rather a God who came in the most vulnerable way possible as a baby clothed in human flesh, in squalor, put in a, a food trough to poor parents. This is not the God of dominance, but here is a God who showed up. As Morris showed us last week from Psalm 8, this is a majestic God, the, the majestic one who is majestic in all the earth, it says in Psalm 8, who set his glory above the heavens, who set the moon and the stars in their place. This is the God of heaven and on earth, who it says in the word, sustains all things by his very breath. 
the one who took... The book of Job says, he commanded the morning since the beginning and caused the dawn to know its place. The one who stores up snow and hail and whom the lightning submits to. There's this wonderful phrase in Job where it says, uh, God's speaking to Job. He says, does the lightning say to you, here I am, as if the lightning has to say, I'm here, God, what do you want me to do? He's in complete control, such authority, and he's all-knowing and all-encompassing in his knowledge. It says in Job, he knows the place and ways of the mountain goat's birth cycles. He knows the mountains ranged by wild donkeys as they search for green pasture. He knows the strength of wild ox. And it goes on to explain, he knows all of this. Why? Because he made it that way. He put it in place. He created these things in these ways. He made them as they are. He gave the horse its might and clothed its neck with a mane. He made him leap like a locust. The things that we use and depend on. You see, so you're thinking of the oxen here. You're thinking of the donkey, the horse. These things that at that time would have been the height of their technology. These are the things that we use to make ourselves strong and feel that we have things in control. They are the things that we can take into battle. The horse that doesn't turn back in battle with the clanging of the, of the weapons, doesn't fear. These things were made by God. We can think we built ourselves up very special, that we are very high and mighty, but God is making a point here. Those things I gave you, the things you rely on for strength and for victory, I made them. And in, in this series, we've looked at many different things. We've heard over the weeks that God is set apart. He's other. He's totally different. He's holy, holy, holy. That from generation to generation, the angels have been crying out in heaven, holy, 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 covering their faces, covering their feet, just singing to one another. He is holy. He is awesome. He knows all we've heard about. He sees all. He is unchanging. He is always righteous. He is majestic in all of his ways. And yet... This God does not force himself on anyone. He doesn't write his law in the stars. No, he descends. He comes down. He leaves his throne to come alongside suffering and to come alongside sin. As we've heard this morning, he, he breathes our air. He, he sweats. He bleeds. He gets dirty. If you want to see God, Jesus says, to look at him. It says in John 12, whoever sees me is seeing the one who sent me. And again, John 14, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So Jesus is saying, do you want to see God? Do you want to know what God's like? Watch me. You want to know what he is like, who he is? Watch this. Watch what I'm like. And then what does Jesus do? Because it's, it's all very well saying, okay, we want to see, what, okay, what do you do then? Who are you then, Jesus? And I want to, if you've got your Bible, John 13, John 13, we'll look in. It'll be on the screen as well. But John, should have got mine already. John 13, verse 3. It says this, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, 
drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And then, then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. This is just an extraordinary picture. This is the night before Jesus goes to the cross. The day before he's getting arrested, he is with his disciples having a meal, and this is what happens in that sitting. You see how the passage begins. If you've got your Bible open and you're in John 13, 3, I'll read it to you as well. Don't worry. This is how it begins. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. And that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, he knew who he was, that he had all this power that had been given to him, that he was coming from God, that he was going back to God. He knew who he was, the son of the father. He's on a mission, sent from God of heaven and earth. It's breathtaking to consider, but what's more breathtaking is what he does with it. What he then proceeds to do. What would you do if you knew, I am sent from God, I'm going back to God, all power has been given to me, hmm, what shall I do? What would you do? Jesus stoops. In fact, it's not just what he does, it's, it's he does it because of who he is. In fact, it's because of who he is that he stoops. It's because all power was under his feet that he does this lowly servant task. This is usually a servant's job, washing the feet of the guests. And Jesus notices that no one has done it, and so the Son of God says, I'll do it. I'll do it. And keep in mind, there's no public transport. There's no cars. There's no bicycles. There's just walking. There's no Nike trainers. There's no Doc Martens. There's not even Crocs. There's just dirty feet. Who knew how they would clip their toenails back then? Gross. But because of who he is, he stands up, takes off his outer robe, puts a towel around his waist, and kneels at their feet. Did you see the word so in there? So he got up. Just ponder that for a second. It's because... It's a therefore, knowing that all of this power had been given to him, knowing who he was, knowing who he'd been sent by, that he was going back to the Father, therefore he stoops. Because he is the eternal son of the Father, because he is God, therefore he loves like this. Therefore he serves in a way that is beneath most humans. The ESV says, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. Knowing that. He then went on to do this. It was in the knowledge of who he was and what he came for that he stood up and took his robe off and put the towel around his waist and knelt at the feet of these simple men. And as he makes out to do this, Peter says what we all would be thinking, I think. You're going to wash my feet? No way. You're not, wash- you're not even going to see my feet. Imagine the awkwardness, the embarrassment. I mean, I don't really want anyone touching my feet. 
like that thought of anyone touching my feet. Do you? I don't want anyone washing my feet for me. Awkward. Embarrassing. And, and what's more, Jesus has showed Peter over the recent years the power that he has, the authority that he has, the might that he has, so much so that Peter seems to know quite clearly who Jesus is. Peter has seen Jesus heal thousands of people with power literally coming out of him. Jesus, uh, Peter's seen Jesus feeding 5,000 people with a small amount of food. He's seen him turn water into wine. He's seen him walk on water and call him, come, you can walk, and enable him to walk on water. And what's more, about a week ago, Jesus saw, sorry, Peter saw Jesus transfigured. He saw light, blinding light emitting from Jesus. And a voice from heaven, the voice of God saying, this is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Peter knows who this is. It's not just Jesus who knows who he is. Peter knows who he is. And therefore, no, you're not washing my feet. No way are you touching my feet. This is wrong. This doesn't fit. But here is Jesus showing us who God is. No, Peter, this is love. It's a picture. The whole scene is a display of the God who stoops. The Prince of Heaven. The one who had been eternally at the seat of honor in the glory and majesty with the Father and the Holy Spirit. This is a picture of what he's going to the next day. In love, he steps down, leaving heavenly majesty that he rightly occupied into the mess of the world that he created, that had turned away from him and become broken and sullied. God had created this world, that it would be perfect and glorious, and he did walk with man in the world. But then the, 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 the man had turned from him, and the world had become broken and sullied, and there, there became uh, things that got, people had to go through to be anywhere near the presence of God. There had to be rituals kept to very, very carefully. And yet Jesus left the heavenly majesty to come into this broken world again. And on that Thursday evening, the day before he goes to be arrested, to go to the cross, Jesus stoops lower than his disciples. He makes himself dirty to wash them clean, knowing that the next day he would descend to the very depths make himself spiritually filthy because the next day he would go to the cross the next day he would take on the lowest place the next day he was going to die a criminal's death this perfect spotless lamb of God was going to take on the most humiliating and brutal execution used by the Roman Empire they would nail men to crosses as criminals, and they would say, hey, we've done our worst. Now let God curse them on that tree. We've done the worst we can do. Now we nail them up and we let God curse them. The wonder of the gospel is that God did pour out the curse on his own son. The just punishment for every evil thought and deed that was done by us was poured out on the sun so that we might be spiritually washed clean 
A few years ago, I was in a worship service <coughs> in our old building, and uh, I felt God remind me of something that I say to one of my boys. My boy Jude was about three at the time, and he was going through a lot of training and disciplining, and I was talking to him fairly often, and I would have to take him to a, another room and correct him. But then after that, he'd been corrected. I would get down to his level. I would look at him in the eye, and I'd say, Jude, how much does daddy love you? And he would look back and often with a pretty grumpy face because he didn't feel very loved in that moment and he wouldn't respond. So I'd put my hands together and I'd say, Jude, does daddy love you this much? And a little crease of a smile would come across his face and he would shake his head. I'd say, Jude, does daddy love you this much? And he would say, no. And I'd say, this much? No. And then I'd say, this much. And then he would smile, beaming, and he would walk into my arms and I'd hug him. And I felt God said to me during that morning, I love you this much. Arms spread open, nailed to a hideous wooden cross, holding nothing back, completely humiliated. He loves you this much. And because of the cross, his arms are forever open for you to step in to his love and embrace. This is the stance of God towards you forever because of what Jesus has done. The foot washing was a display of this love. Jesus took on the very lowest place in love to save and cleanse those who could not save or cleanse themselves. As we come to the end of this Surprise by God series, this is what we're left with. We've gone through all these different things of what God is like, and at the end, this is what we're left with. The God who stoops. It's not just God doing something ungodlike. It's not like God, he didn't really want to do that, but he had to step out of the godliness to do this horrible bit and then step back into godliness. No, this is what God is like. This is who God is. It's God being God. It looks like this. It looks like him stooping. Pastor and author Glenn Scrivener says it this way, to see God, we don't gaze up to the heavens. We look down awkwardly to the slave at our feet intent on washing us. There is God on his knees, getting dirty so that we can be clean. There is God embracing humiliation to dignify us. There is God at our feet, and none of us know where to look. Can this be possible? What are you doing? Because the thing is, none of the disciples deserved this. I mean, we might squirm and think, I don't want people to see my ugly bits. But none of the disciples deserve this, and neither do we. Within 24 hours of this event, every single one of these feet has either walked away, run away, hidden, deserted, uh, even betrayed Jesus. And you know what? Jesus knew that as he knelt and washed their feet. He knew that was going to happen. He was aware of what was going on, what would happen over the next 24 hours, and he still stooped. This is for those of you who say, it's great, this is lovely, this, this gospel that Jesus would love me this much, but it's not for me because of what I've done. It doesn't count for me, what I've been involved with, what I'm going through right now. This doesn't get to where I need it to get to. What about my lack of faith? What about my hatred, my anger about what's happened to me? 
my anger towards God, what I did last night, what I did this morning. This isn't for me. And listen to me. He knows you. He knows all of that. That's the point. He stooped for you. He got dirty for you. In fact, that's why he came. Because of that mess. Your mess is why he came. Now, Peter is so helpful for us here. Peter is the, 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 Peter's like us, right? Peter's like me in the Gospels. Again and again, Jesus is like, Peter, stop it. No, Peter. No, not quite. Stop. Pete, Pete. Oh, Peter. Just constantly, Peter is a source of uh, encouragement for me. Even in this passage, he's the one who is corrected by Jesus. But it's happening all the time. Peter, put your sword away. Peter, stop it. Peter, you're speaking the words of Satan. And then what does Peter do towards the very end? He promises Jesus, I'll never deny you. And Jesus knows, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And three times he does deny him and, and gets ugly, right? He swears, he curses, I didn't know him. Now, three days later, as we've sung, Jesus gloriously rises from death, defeating death, defeating sin. He is the victor. He is who he always says he was. Now, what do you do if you're Peter? What do you do? Some, some of you know this is, this, is, this is what you feel like all the time. I am. He is victorious. He's so glorious. He's so good. And, and what am I? I'm the one cursing his name. What do you do? Do you run and hide in a, in a hole of guilt and shame? If anyone feels the most unwanted at that point, the most unloved, the most disqualified, it's got to be Peter, right? But let's look quickly at Mark 16, where the two Marys are on their way to the tomb and discover that he is risen. It says this, And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed with a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Did you hear it? Go and tell his disciples and Peter. Make sure you tell Peter. Don't forget Peter. He's risen and he'll meet you where he said he would. Listen, this is for you. This is for you. He's not put off by your mess. This is why he came. Don't forget, Peter. That's what he says about you. Don't forget him. High King of heaven, born low to save me. Why don't you say that with me? High King of heaven, born low to save you. So in this, we see what God is like. And we're reminded what we're really like. He's the God who does not remain distant and callous. He reaches into our mess. Actually, he goes further. He comes and walks in our mess to deal with it. We're not like that, are we? We're self-serving. I mean, I don't like the thought of washing some burly fisherman's feet. 
but I'm happy to wash my own. Jesus loves people who need to be loved. We love people who are easy to love. He's not like we are. Even on the eve of his execution, even to those who abandon him, he stoops, he bends the knee, he serves, he loves. He says to them, your needs are my needs. Your pain is my pain. Your debts are my debts. This is the God who surprises us. It might be that you've come today for the first time or that you've been coming for a while and you've heard about this God and you have thought, I need this God. I want this God. He's glorious and he's been revealing himself to me. Now, I spoke to a few people in the recent weeks who have basically been saying that. Over, the, over this last month, God has been revealing himself to me. Now, just remember what Peter has heard from Jesus here. Jesus says, unless I wash you, you now have no part with me. Jesus came to wash you so that you could have relationship with him. Today is the day for some of you to say, okay, enough thinking about it. Enough. I've heard enough. I believe Jesus died so that I could be clean. You agree with Peter when Peter says, oh, in that case, not just my feet, but, but my hands and my head as well. You want to get to that point where you're saying, wash me, all of me, forgive me, and make me new. And we're going to have communion in a moment, if the band want to come up. And at communion, is a perfect moment for you, if that's you, to, to take the cup and the wafer and speak to Jesus. Speak to him. Tell him that you believe in his death for you. Ask him to forgive you and pledge to put your trust in him. And then please tell someone. Tell me so that we can encourage you, so that we can be encouraged. And, th and there's Christians here as well. I've spoken a lot to Christians lately who are tired, who are hurting, who are overwhelmed, people in tears, people hurting for all sorts of reasons, people confused, and people embarrassed that they're struggling. I think we're probably still pretty naive about how the last two years has really impacted us. And some of us are just determined to march on, stiff upper lip, keep going almost denying that there's anything going on. And some of you, it's really not the pandemic, but just life. Life is difficult. And I've heard so many people saying, you know, I'm really struggling, but, but, but they don't really want to admit it to anybody else. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know that it's, life is difficult, but here's the thing. You're not letting Jesus anywhere near that. I'm not letting him touch that. I'm not taking my shoes off. I'm going to hide my feet. I'll come to Jesus when I've sorted that out. When I've cleaned my feet off, then he can have a look at them. There's no way you're going to let others know. And listen to me, Satan loves that. Satan loves that. A church where everyone's pretending that they're fine and that there's no cleaning for Jesus to do. If you're fine... Take your shoes off. But you don't want to come to Jesus in that way. We must let others know. We must bring it to Jesus. Jesus came for that. We're not supposed to carry the burdens that Jesus died to take away. 
He died so that those things could be dealt with. He didn't come for us to pretend. He didn't come for us to cover ourselves. He came to serve, to wash, and to cover us himself. The beautiful thing is that when this lie is broken, the church starts to really take on new life, new health. Family who actually know each other. Family who are actually able to love one another as we speak honestly and say, yeah, it's pretty ugly, but I want to bring it to Jesus. I want him to impact me. I want him to help me. And will you do that with me? Others realize, ah, good. I'm able to do that as well. We must live like this. As we have communion, there's an opportunity now for us Christians to be honest with God. Jesus, I'm tired. I'm fed up. I am exhausted. I'm confused. I'm angry. I'm scared. I'm proud. Help me. Please help me. I need to stop kidding myself. Turn to the person you came with. Be honest. Tell them what's going on. Let's not kid ourselves. Say, we need Jesus, the God who would stoop for us. I think this is, in this Ephesians 3 prayer that I prayed at the beginning, that we would be rooted and grounded in love, that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is, what is the breadth, what is the length, what is the height, but also what is the depth of the love of God. God would come in all his fullness out of heaven, step into our dirt, into our mess, to make us whole for himself. This is the God who stoops. And this is how we finish this series. This almighty, all-consuming, glorious God would make himself a servant for our sakes. We're going to have communion now. And as we do, let's just do one of those two things. I want to call you to that. If you're not yet someone who's surrendered your life to Jesus, now is a moment you may think, I believe this. I need Jesus. God, I'm calling on you for your forgiveness. I believe your death was for my sake. Would you forgive me? I want to trust you. And if you're a Christian, you may have this moment to say, Jesus, I've just got mess that I've been too scared to open myself up to you about. But I can't cover this when this is what you came for. I want to step into life honestly with you, letting you touch the places of me that you need to. Father, I just pray this, this morning that you would please tenderly meet with people as they say, okay, okay. If you're saying you have to touch me for me to have any part with you, then you must touch me. If you're saying I need to be cleansed, I need to be served by you so that I can know you. Then you must cleanse me. You must serve me. You must do what you need to do. I can't say no to you. I must say yes to you. Father, I pray, please, would you help us to, to respond to this love. As we take this communion, Lord, help us to remember this is the extent that you would willingly go for us the band's going to play the song that we learned at the beginning that will just so helpfully just bring these truths stir our hearts sing them out it's a good time to do business with God now